Good morning, everyone. Um, our reading today comes from the book of Acts, chapter 5, verses 12 to 42. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats, so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honoured by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thudas appeared claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, 
Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it, if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Sally. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Sam. I'm one of the pastors here. I lead our uni church congregation that meets on a Sunday evening. It's great to be with you exploring this part of the Bible this morning. If you've got a, a news sheet, please keep that open, the Bible in front of you. Or if you've got your own Bible or grabbed one on the way in, keep the passage open there. Today, we're going to see a bunch of followers of Jesus who are absolutely determined to keep sharing their faith about Jesus, despite any resistance, despite any responses, despite even harsh opposition, they are absolutely determined to keep sharing about Jesus. They're a bit like the Colorado River. This is a picture of the Grand Canyon. Has anyone been to the Grand Canyon? Yeah, okay, a few people, nice. The rest of us have all no doubt seen the Grand Canyon on movies or online. It's a spectacular uh, gorge in the United States of America, uh, and that whole canyon has been formed by the persistent, unrelenting, gentle force of the Colorado River. It's not, a, it's not a big river, but over countless, countless lifetimes, that river has dug what was flat land into this huge, spectacular canyon. Despite all the resistance of having to cut through rock Despite the huge amount of time that it's taken, that river has persistently kept at its work and formed that spectacular canyon that we can see today. And these followers of Jesus in the passage are a bit like that river. Despite the challenges, despite the resistance, however hard it is, they just keep sharing about Jesus uh, and God does amazing things through them. And remember, that... that witnessing that, that sharing about Jesus, that's the task that they were given back in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, right? Does anyone remember what Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says? Anyone want to shout out, have a crack? It's kind of the key, like the theme verse of the book of Acts. Yeah, you'll be my witnesses, that's right, yep. Let, let's have it up on the screen there, Ruth. So this is Acts 1 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Right, that verse is basically the big picture of Acts. Jesus' followers, empowered by the Spirit of Jesus, to witness to Jesus throughout Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That's the big picture of Acts. And so as we read this passage, 
what we're seeing is the disciples, the followers of Jesus, continuing to carry this out, to obey Jesus' command. And they're doing it with their, their life together and with their words, right? With their life together and with their words. So we see how they're living this out with their life together, particularly in verses 12 to 16. So have a look at those verses in front of you there. They performed signs and wonders, right? They were doing miracles that pointed to Jesus. All the believers met together and more and more people believed and were added to their number. People were bringing in the sick to be healed, to to receive the blessing of these miracles. And like it was, maybe you remember passages a bit like this in chapter 2 and in chapter 4, these passages that talk about what the Christian community is like, they're kind of, um, they're like literary markers through this early section of Acts. So this structure that you can see on the screens of Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, those, those different concentric circles form the different parts of Acts, like the kind of chapters of this story. And the series that we're in at the moment is through Acts chapters 1 to 7, which is the, the gospel spreading through Jerusalem. At the end of chapter 7, the apostles are scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, and we kind of start the next chapter. Um, and in this section of Acts, while we're still in Jerusalem, we get this escalating cycle of the apostles doing miracles, preaching the gospel, meeting harsher and harsher resistance, but the community of Christians keeps growing and thriving and the gospel keeps going out anyway. And so this passage 12 to 16 is, is one of the kind of conclusions of that cycle, that the gospel is going out anyway, the church is growing anyway, even despite all this resistance. So they're witnessing to Jesus with their life together as, as a community. Can you see how people respond to that in verse 13? It says, no one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. It's an interesting response to this Christian community, right? We're going to return to that a little later on. So the witness of their life together is paired with the witness of of their words, of what they say about Jesus. And, And their words about Jesus, their witness to Jesus is fearless, it's, it's dogged, it's persistent. There are two really encouraging descriptions of their spoken witness about Jesus in this passage. So have a look at the first one in um, verse 18, uh, from verse 18 to verse 20. So they arrested the apostles, put them in the public jail, but during the night an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail, brought them out. And then this is what the angel says. Look at verse 20. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. Tell the people all about this new life. How might that shape the way that we share our faith with people? What does it look like for us to tell the people all about this new life? life. As, we're, as Christians, as we try to share that the hope, the good news that we found in Jesus with those around us, 
we're not just sharing kind of facts or historical events or, or logical propositions. We're, we're sharing about a new life that God has called us into, a new way of being human. Life which is eternal, but which begins now, today and tomorrow and every day into eternity. Jesus calls us to a life a life of self-denial, a life of purpose, a life of deep community, a life of hope, a life that's turned upside down. So I wonder, if you're a Christian, how do you share that life with people around you? In your workplace, does your life look any different to those around you? Is there anything different about your speech, your, your behaviours, your priorities that, that mark you out as a follower of Jesus? I remember getting to know someone at uni back in the day who I shared several classes with, uh, and she and I kind of got to know each other a bit across these few classes that we shared throughout our course across a number of years. And then after several years of knowing each other, uh, I saw her at a Christian event having no idea that she was a Christian and realising she had no idea that I was a Christian either. That we, you know, we'd been friendly, nice people, but nothing about our, our words or our actions had, had marked us out, even to another Christian as a follower of Jesus. If your faith is indiscernible from your actions then let me, let me encourage and challenge you with the example of these disciples whose lives pointed to Jesus and whose words pointed to the transformed life that Jesus offers to anyone who would follow him. They declared all the words about this new life. And the second description of the witness of the apostles in this passage is in verses 29 to 32. So they get broken out of jail by an angel. The angel sends them back to keep preaching, which they do. The Jewish leaders send soldiers to collect them from prison and are gobsmacked to find out that they're not there. And when they do find them preaching again, they bring them in again. From verse... Uh, 28. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. This is one of the most concise, yet comprehensive gospel presentations in Scripture, I think. Peter just gives them the facts of what's happened. He declares the good news of the gospel, no holds barred. Right? God raised Jesus from the dead after you killed him by hanging him on a cross. 
God exalted Jesus to his own right hand as Prince and Saviour to bring the people to repentance and faith. And we are witnesses of these things. And God has given us his Holy Spirit. Right? That's, that's, the, that's the events. That's the good news of what's happened. That's the gospel. The death, the resurrection, the exaltation of Jesus, the giving of the Holy Spirit to those who would follow him. It's the the historically anchored proclamation of what God has done to deal with sin and death and evil in this world and in our lives. I love this, this pair of gospel descriptions in the passage here, right? This new life in verse 20, and we are witnesses of these things in verse 32. Because together, those two ways that the followers of Jesus are sharing about Jesus... They present a comprehensive engagement of people's worldviews. Together they answer the two big questions that we all ask about life, the two big questions that we need an answer to for any worldview to make sense. Is it true and is it good? Is it true and is it good? Any, any belief system, any way of viewing the world that we might hold has to carry the weight of these two questions. Is what you believe true? And is what you believe good? And the gospel answers both of those questions with a resounding yes. It's true. It happened. It's anchored in, in history. And it's good. It's, it's new life, it's reconciliation, it's, it's wholeness, it's peace with God, it's life to the full, as Jesus puts it. As we share our faith with people, we need to do so in a way that engages both of these questions. Is it true? Is it good? The followers of Jesus, they witness to Jesus with their life together and with the words that they speak as they hold out the truth and the goodness of the gospel. And they keep doing it, no matter the response. They keep witnessing to Jesus, no matter the response. If, if, you're, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, can you think of a time when you've tried to, to share the hope that you have with someone, tried to share about Jesus with someone. How did they respond? Maybe you can think of times when, when someone's listened, maybe been curious, perhaps even, even heard and believed. Or maybe you've been met with awkward, kind of how quickly can I get out of this conversation responses from people. Maybe a, a swift shutdown, maybe eyes darting past your shoulders looking for an escape route. I, I can remember both of those responses. And as these followers of Jesus witness to Jesus, their, their words, their message, their gospel, and their, their community as well, their life together, is met with a range of responses. People respond in different ways to them. And, and here's the point. They keep Witnessing to Jesus, no matter the response. Like that river keeps digging into the ground, digging that canyon. They just keep 
witnessing to Jesus. There are four responses to the gospel in this passage, four responses to what the Christians are living and sharing. There are people who are curious, people who are threatened, people who are offended, and people or one person who's agnostic. Curious, threatened, offended, agnostic. What's, what's your response to the message of Jesus? We see people respond to the Christian community who are curious. As we read before from verse 13 and 14, no one else dared join them, but more and more people were added to their number daily. So people are kind of watching this Christian community from outside, really interested in what's going on, but kind of freaked out by what they're seeing. Half wanting in, half wanting to run away. They're they're curious, perhaps confused, perhaps even a bit afraid, but more and more people are being added to their number each day. They're looking, these are people looking for God and looking at the Christians and trying to work out, is that where God is? Is their message true and is it good? They're trying to decide whether that's something that they want to be part of or not. I remember once being at a a worship event, sitting next to a woman who had come in off the street, having just found a flyer on the street, talking with her and and her search for God, looking everywhere to try and find that, that life, that belief which was true and which was good and so she'd come into this church into this worship event curious do these people really know God do they have the answers I'm looking for some people here are curious other people are are, are threatened and it's particularly the Jewish leaders in verse 17 it says they're filled with jealousy exactly as they were with Jesus himself right they're threatened by the disruptive demands of the gospel, how it will reshape their society, how it demands them themselves to reshape their lives. They perceive the message of Jesus and the followers of Jesus as a threat to what they hold dear. There are other people who are offended. So this is the Sanhedrin, it's it's a lot of these same leaders, right? They say in verse 28, you are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. The apostles are are, are accusing them, you hung Jesus on a cross. It's your sin that's the barrier between people and God. And they're offended. Lots of people respond to the gospel this way still today, don't they? It's offensive to say that someone's sinful that there's something that's broken inside them, that there's something in the way between them and God that they can't fix themselves. It's, it's offensive, but for Christians, we believe that it's absolutely freeing and life-giving to acknowledge this truth and look to the God who can deal with sin, who can take away our sin that we can't deal with ourselves. The offence that people feel here is kind of bubbling up in Acts. They're going to be experiencing harsher and harsher opposition to the gospel. And that's kind of like the situation that that we find ourselves in as Christians today. Not not the kind of 
animosity that they experience here. We're not being thrown in prison or anything, but in, in a moment in our culture, in our history, where opposition to the, to the message of the Christian faith is growing, the offence of the gospel is, is more and more met with resistance. And finally, we meet Gamaliel, who's agnostic. That means he's, he's not willing to commit either way. He's not sure. His approach is a let's wait and see approach. He's holding the gospel at arm's length. He's just going to see what happens. Gamaliel was a, a famous teacher and scholar who had an even more famous pupil called Saul, who would not be agnostic in any sense. But that's the way that Gamaliel responds to the gospel. So if you're here and, and you're not a Christian, if you've heard this, this message of Jesus and you're, you're deciding what to do with it, which of these responses do you reckon best describes you? Curious or threatened or offended or agnostic? If you're here and you are a Christian, then here's the, the encouragement from the apostles. They are met with all of these responses in the passage. And what do they do? They keep sharing about Jesus. They keep being witnesses. They keep sharing the gospel. They don't stop out of fear of being rejected or because some people aren't interested in hearing the good news. Right? They have found life to the full in Jesus and they want to share it. Like a, like a sailor calling out to the other sailors on the boat. There's land on the horizon, right? They want, to, they want to share the good news that they've come to know themselves. In that, that language of verse 20, they want to share the new life that they've found in Jesus. There's a famous atheist called Penn Gillette, who, even though he didn't believe in the God of the Bible or any, any God... He understood, perhaps more than we do sometimes, why sharing faith, witnessing to Jesus is so important. He calls it proselytizing. That's, that's the word that he uses. Proselytizing means trying to convince someone to believe what you believe. And so here's what this atheist kind of philosopher says. I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or, or not getting eternal life and you think it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think people shouldn't proselytize and who say, just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself. How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. We keep witnessing to Jesus no matter the response. And no matter the cost whatever the cost. These followers of Jesus, they get locked up 
for trying to tell people about Jesus. It's easy to just read that, right? It happens a number of times through the Bible, but that, that's a devastating experience for them. Right? That's, it's shameful, it's painful. That's what many Christians around the world still experience today as they try to share this new life in Jesus. It feels pretty far from our experience here, doesn't it? But, but Christians are the most persecuted religious group in the world, imprisoned and excluded and, and hunted for their witness to Jesus. In India, there are thousands of attacks against Christians and churches each year. In the last two months, in just the state of Manipur, more than 80 believers have been killed, tens of thousands have been left homeless, 300 churches have been burned down. In, in parts of China, in parts of Western Africa, across the Middle East, parts of Indonesia and Malaysia, in the Horn of Africa, followers of Jesus just keep sharing Jesus, whatever the cost. They, they get it, right? They get that they're following a crucified Messiah. As v- verse 41 puts it in our passage, they are rejoicing because they have been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. If you can meet suffering for your faith with rejoicing, that kind of unmovable, no matter what, confidence, then what can people do to you? Right? It's it's joy, it's freedom, there's nothing to lose. We must keep witnessing to Jesus, whatever the response, whatever the cost. Keep witnessing to Jesus, whatever the response, whatever the cost. Well, we all, um, we all watched and waited with some kind of horror last week as we watched the news, right, of those five guys in the submarine visiting the Titanic. We heard a lot about those guys who, who died, but let me tell you about someone who died when the Titanic itself went down. This is John Harper. He was a Scottish pastor, and he spent his life witnessing to Jesus, to all who would listen. And in 1912, John Harper is traveling to Chicago to spend some time preaching at a church there. His wife had died a few years earlier, and he's taking his six-year-old daughter, Nana, on the trip with him. And when the Titanic struck the iceberg and began to sink, he put Nana into a lifeboat, and then he runs through the ship yelling, women, children, and the unsaved into the lifeboats. When the ship finally goes down, he's already given his life jacket to another passenger. And survivors report that to the very end, Harper was witnessing to Jesus to anyone who would listen. One survivor recalls clinging to a plank of wood floating in the Atlantic Ocean when Harper floated near him. Man, are you saved? cries Harper. No, I'm not replies the man. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved, pleads Harper. The waves carry him away. A little while later, he floats back. Are you saved now? asks Harper. No, I cannot honestly say that I am, says the man. Again, Harper pleads with him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And shortly afterward, Harper went down below the waves. 
And that man who survived, in a public meeting four years later, he, he retold this episode and he said, there alone in the night, with two miles of water under me, I believed. I am John Harper's last convert. Keep witnessing to Jesus, whatever the response, whatever the cost. Let me pray that we would. Jesus, in you there is new life. You've made us witnesses of this new life. Help us to share the hope that we have in Jesus fearlessly and persistently, whatever the response and whatever the cost. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.